You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. How are we doing? Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. I know there are some folks visiting with us today, uh, guests for the first time. Welcome, if this is your first time here. Uh, make sure you do stop by our uh, new welcome station that we set up outside. Hopefully you saw our tent. Uh, we have a welcome gift for you if you're visiting with us for the first time. The other thing I'd ask you if you're a guest today, please fill out one of these welcome cards that you can get out at the, at the front uh, tent there. And if you fill it in, I will give you a Starbucks gift card personally. So please fill those out. We just want to know a little bit about you, how we can uh, get to know you a little bit more. So, so thank you for being here. Exciting Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, we're wrapping up our sermon series in November that we've called Generous. And generosity is certainly an important topic anytime, but it's a p- particularly appropriate for the holiday season, right? Because most of us have enjoyed generous portions over the last uh, few days. Uh, I know I've enjoyed, uh, been too generous with my portions over the last two days. Uh, Pat Toomey said that he actually uh, smoked a turkey. He was out back smoking with it. Smoking with the turkey. Um, I think he was kidding. Uh, But I love Thanksgiving, right? It's a time to slow down. It's a time to just reflect. It's a time to think about uh, all that God has given to us. So uh, the title of my sermon today is The Generous Will Prosper. And I'm going to be talking about three things. First of all, we're going to talk about some facts about generosity in our world today. And then we'll talk about what Jesus taught about generosity because he had a lot to say about that topic. And then finally, we'll talk about how we can better obey God in this area of generosity. So let's go ahead and pray as we we jump into this today. Father, uh, we're just so grateful for the opportunity to worship you in in public and to be able to live in a country where we can do that and to be able to read your scriptures in the public, God. And um, it's just wonderful that we can do that. And we know so many brothers and sisters around the world are not able to do that. So, Father, just uh, I pray that you really open our, our hearts today to the scriptures that we're going to look at. Um, just help us to discern really what you want from us, God, from a, from a generosity standpoint. We know that it's important to you, and I just pray that uh, we come away with decisions about how we can be more generous, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we get into this idea of generosity, we have to talk about, you know, wealth. And, and wealth comes in many forms. Money comes in many forms, right? I mean, we, money is one way we think about wealth. But also, you can argue that another form of wealth is our time, right? Because time is, is obviously probably the most valuable resource we have. It's finite. Uh, we know that we can't buy more of it. Even if you're Donald Trump, you can't buy more time, right? You can't add a single second to your life. And I've been doing some research over the last couple of weeks and uh, have found some interesting statistics about our treasure and our time. And I'll warn you in advance, it's not incredibly encouraging, uh, but this will end encouraging, I promise you, because we're going to take it to a, to a better place. But we've got to go to the dark side first. But the overall headline that I've really come to the conclusion of is that we as a nation are as wealthy as we've ever been, but we're also probably the least generous that we've ever been. And let me just tell you some of the stats that I used to come to that conclusion. I mean, we often hear about how wealthy our country is, right? But, but an interesting chart that I saw, and this might be, uh, yeah, I guess you can see it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting chart that shows the distribution of wealth in the world today. And it comes from a, a Swiss bank, Credit Suisse. But 
it's no secret that, that, that the money in the world is concentrated in a relatively small group of people, right? You've heard that before. But it was staggering to me just to see how concentrated wealth is in our world today. And you'll see here, if you look at the darker green sections of the pie chart, that the top 8% of the world's population controls 80% of all the wealth. So another way to think about that is if there were, you know, 100 people in the world, 100 people total in the world, that means eight people would have 80 cents of every dollar. 92 people would share 20 cents on every dollar. So you can just give, get an idea, it's just crazy to me how concentrated the money is today in our world. And you might be saying, wow, it would be nice to be in the top 8%, right? Uh, but you might be surprised at how many of us actually are in the top echelons of wealth, at least from a monetary standpoint. If you add up all of your net worth, um, and this is just another way to look at it, this pyramid, but all of your net worth, so add up all your, if you have any savings accounts or checking accounts, if you happen to own your home and you have equity in the home, um, if you have a retirement plan at work, throw that in there. If you have any money under the mattress, throw that in there. Add all that up and then take out all the debts that you have. That's your net worth, right? So if your net worth is more than $10,000, you're in the top 30% of wealth in the world which was surprising to me. And if you have more than $100,000 in home equity or investments, you're in the top 10% of wealth globally. I mean, it really brought, when Brian showed the video of 60 Minutes, you remember how much those people were paying to be able to get out of Syria? It was $1,500, and they called that a small fortune for people to escape with their lives out of Syria. So, I mean, $10,000 is a lot of money, but, but I think if you just step and put it in perspective for a minute, most of us in L.A. have a car, right? How much do you spend for your car? Probably more than $10,000 when you add it all up. So we are truly the richest country on the planet in many ways. And if we're that wealthy, logic would tell us that we're also the most generous, right? That's what logic would tell you, but, but that's really not the case. Um, a study that was done by the Chronicle of Philanthropy found that charitable giving in our country as a percentage of our gross domestic product is essentially unchanged over the last 40 years. So Americans have always given about 2% of our wealth to charity in any given year, and that's fluctuated very little. So while we're wealthy, we're nearly not growing in this area of financial generosity in our country. And then I start thinking, well, what about our time? Uh, are we more generous with our time? You know, if you're like me, I mean, it just seems to me like, as a nation, we're working harder than we've ever worked. Do any of you feel like you're working fewer hours today than you were working five years ago? <laughs> I mean, I don't think many people do. So it feels like we would have less discretionary time, right? Less time to be able to give to charitable causes. But I was really interested to see this chart. And this might be busy from where you're sitting, but it's basically the, the average hours worked per person per year in the major developed countries over the last 40 years, back to 1970. So the U.S. is the dotted black line that kind of runs right through the middle. And I was surprised that actually it's fairly flat, but the number of hours per person we work in the U.S. is actually less today than it was in 1970 when you look at the hours worked per person. That's not to say that people don't work more, because I think some people do, but on, overall, we're working less. As an, it was about 1,900 hours in 1970. It was about 1,800 hours in 2006. So with the reduction in working hours, again, the optimists would hope that Americans are more generous donating their time to charitable causes, Right. That's what you'd hope, but unfortunately, that's not really the case either. The U.S. Bureau of Labor uh, estimates that the volunteer rate of the U.S. population, 
and that's the percentage of people that basically donated any of their time to any charitable cause, has declined from 29% in 2003 to 25% in 2014. So, said differently, three out of four people in our country give no time, no time to charitable causes, which is pretty staggering to me as well. So, you know, you can see that we're as wealthy as we've ever been. You know, you can say that we, we're the least generous we've ever been. Not very encouraging, like I said. But you could be saying, well, Mark, the statistics may say that we're wealthy, but I certainly don't feel wealthy, <laughs> right? I mean, by the time I pay my bills and I work all the hours I have to work and I give and I give and I give, I have nothing left to give. I don't know if you feel that way. You can relate. I hear you. It's a valid concern, but we should just stop and examine that for a moment. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys that we live in one of the most expensive cities in the world, don't we? I don't know why, but it seems like there's an endless demand of people that want to live in the sunshine, near the beach, with the palm trees, movie stars. I get it. You know, it's a good place to live. But we're also painfully aware that they're not making more land here in Los Angeles, are they? Right? So, especially in the beach cities, the prices are high. And it's just supply and demand. But the basics alone are expensive here in L.A. I mean, if you look at Investopedia statistics from 2015, the average two-bedroom apartment in L.A., and this is not South Bay, this is L.A., right, overall, L.A. County, $2,500 a month for a two-bedroom apartment if you can find one. Food for one person in a given month, minimally $500 a month. Food's expensive, right? Now, in L.A., we have great public transportation, right? It's the best in the world. But most people need a car in LA to get around. So car, you're probably looking around 200 bucks a month if you're, if you're leasing or renting or buying a car. You're probably going to need fuel for that car and insurance. So you're looking at another $300 a month for fuel and insurance. These are stats from Investopedia. I didn't make these up. So when you add it all up, basically just to pay for shelter, food and transportation and taxes, because we know taxes are, are a real reality in California. Um, $50,000 per year gross is what you need to make to be able to pay just for the basics. And, and the harsh reality is that many Angelinos don't earn close to that. They're below that level, well below that level. I mean, just another sobering statistic is that 16% of those that live in the L.A. County struggle to obtain enough food to eat in any given week. So that's one in six people that are basically what we call food insecure. They don't have enough healthy food, and they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And when you do the math, that's 1.7 million in L.A. County that are food insecure, right in our backyard. They don't get enough healthy food, and 400,000 of those are children. And for many of those children, the only meals that they get are their school lunch. Have any of you seen a school lunch? It's not a lot of food, right? That's the only meal they get. That's the only healthy food they get to eat. And if they're lucky, they may get a school breakfast. And then they come home at night, and they're hungry, and there's no healthy food for them at home. And then they spend the whole weekend, oftentimes, without a single meal, the whole weekend. I mean, we delivered 25 baskets full of Thanksgiving food last week uh, to poor families in our area. And just to hear the stories, uh, Steve Marici shared about the, this family that he, he delivered the basket to. They literally jumped for joy when they saw this. There were so many kids packed in this small, this small apartment. Uh, and they just jump for joy when they see this nutritious food, right? Because it's so, it's so valuable to them. And thanks to Elaine Johnson and all those who, who put that together and donated. Round of applause. 
It was really cool to come out of service last week and see the lineup of baskets. I don't know if you all noticed that, but we had more baskets, I think. That's probably a record for us, wasn't it, Elaine? So, but, but our economic system increasingly looks like this barbell, right? On one end of the spectrum, you have people who struggle to get a roof over their head, that struggle to get enough food to eat. And then on the other end, we have people who are really wealthy by global standards, but they may not feel like it. Because, I mean, you ultimately see all this marketing that corporations do to you, and, and, and you begin to have this idea of a standard of living that just feels like it's table stakes, like you should just have it, right? And it became, becomes to feel like a sacrifice if you have to live in a smaller apartment or house, or you have to drive a car that's older, or if you have to shop at Ross instead of Nordstrom's, or if you have to, you know, dine out only once a week, or take one vacation a week, you know. All these corporations want you to think that, wow, you deserve more than that, right? You should have a better lifestyle than that. But this dichotomy that we see, you know, between rich and poor is not new. You know, it's, it's true. I think if you look over history, God has, I don't think, ever equally distributed wealth among people. Uh, but he's a generous God, and we're made in his image, and we too are designed to be generous. And when we're generously giving out of our excess to help those that don't have enough, we shouldn't have anybody going hungry or anybody that's homeless in our midst. But as plan breaks down when you don't recognize how much you really have and you aren't generous with the time and money that God has given you. I mean, Jesus understood this. He understood that money was one of the top concerns of human beings. And you start breaking down the Bible. I found some interesting statistics here. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus spoke were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. Almost half of them. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses, so 288 verses in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible has 2,000 verses on money and possessions. And just by way of comparison, there's 500 verses on prayer. There's 500 verses on faith. There's 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So do you think it's safe to assume that correctly handling our possessions is something that God is concerned with? I think it is, right? So Jesus had a lot to say about money in the Bible. And we'll pick it up in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 32, where Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes in and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So just think about how true this is, what Jesus talks about when it comes to wealth. Jesus is saying that earthly treasures, they they waste away. They dissipate, right? And, And worse yet, they can be stolen by thieves. Did any of you have money in the stock market in 2008? Okay. Did you see how quickly that disappeared? Half of your stock's gone. Half the value gone overnight. How about a house that went down in value in 2008? Okay. If you had owned your home, you saw it happen firsthand. Money can disappear in an instant. And many of us have experienced that. I mean, I experienced it very directly because I worked for an investment management firm for 20 years. And I remember in 2001, what happened in 2001? The stock market burst. You know, the technology bubble burst. People lost a lot of money. What happened in 2008, the the technology, it wasn't technology, but the stocks went down. And I remember I had to go out to big groups of 401k participants at different companies because I work for this company. And I had to explain to them, try to explain to them why they had just lost half of their savings. That was not easy. 
And they were not happy campers because people get very emotionally attached to their money. And you see it very directly when you're on the other side. But I remember distinctly this meeting in rural Oregon. Um, and what do they do in Oregon? They log. And they're big loggers. And there's like 400 loggers. And I had to go into a room about this size full of 400 loggers. And they were not happy. And I'm trying to explain, hey, stocks eventually come up again. They're like, yeah, right. I, thought that was, I didn't think I was going to make it out of there alive. People get attached to their money. But Jesus tells us that we can have an infinitely better treasure. You know, a treasure in heaven. Treasures in heaven will be like purses that never wear out. And I started thinking about that. I was like, I don't think I want a man purse in heaven. Maybe a wallet, Jesus. But I do want treasure that will never wear out. And our outlook on money can be so much like we see in this two-minute Looney Tune clip. Are any Looney Tune fans here? Bugs Bunny fans? Okay, let's lighten it up a little bit. Let's watch Bugs Bunny. The light brown hair. Oh, mighty genie. Release me, and I shall grant thee a rich reward. He's lying! Chop him! Chop him! Hassan, release you, old master! Thank you, Hassan. Now, wouldst thou like to have all this treasure for thy very own? Oh, oh yes, master. Hassan like. Hassan like. Very well. So you get the idea. I always, when I think of treasure, I think of that cartoon for some reason. I thought I would just share it. But someone, of, we can be like Hassan, right? I mean, Hassan's kind of like, yes, Hassan like, Hassan like. You know, we want the treasure. And we, if we had a big pile of treasure, what would we do? Take a run, dive, dive into it, bathe in it. But we can have that attitude towards riches. Like it's something we just savor and we want, right? And Jesus is encouraging us, though, in this scripture that you know, these assets, these perishable treasures that we have on earth, they're not going to last forever. You know, we can have treasure in heaven if we're generous here on earth. I mean, do we really believe that? If we do, we shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't we be as eager as we possibly could be to give as much as we can here on earth? I mean, who wouldn't want to exchange this dwindling temporary asset for something that's going to last forever in heaven? I mean, Jesus couldn't be more clear about how we should view treasures on earth. I mean, people had different responses to his promise, though. They had different responses in his day, and they have different responses today. I mean, just to contrast two examples uh, in the Bible of how people responded to Jesus, starting in Luke chapter 19, familiar story to us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, 
He stood, when Jesus reached the spot, he, stood, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So people came down at once. So he came down at once and welcomed him glad, gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So when I think of Zacchaeus, I think of Danny DeVito for some reason. <laughs> like this little short man that can't see and he's jumping and he's like runs and climbs up the tree. And he's kind of probably pretty loud and obnoxious. And the Bible said he, he, he stood up and he talked to Jesus. And it's possible that Jesus still didn't see him. He had to say, look, Lord, I'm over here. But Zacchaeus was obviously shrewd. He ran ahead, he climbed the tree, and he was despised by the Jews, just like all the tax collectors of the day were. I mean, they were infamous for over-collecting the Roman tax so they could enrich themselves. That's what they did. So the Jews couldn't stand these tax collectors. It was probably like, um, you remember Bernie Madoff, the guy who stole a bunch of money a few years ago, went to jail? They were kind of like the Bernie Madoff of Jesus' day. That's how people saw him. They were, they were stealing from their own people. But I love Zacchaeus' response to Jesus. I, he immediately gave half of his possessions to the poor. And he was willing to pay back four times what he owed anyone. And Jesus didn't ask him to do this. He did it out of gratitude, right? He just didn't command him. Jesus had the right response to Jesus, and he had the right perspective on wealth. And then the Bible gives us the account of another rich man who had a very different response to Jesus, which is also a familiar story to all of us, the rich ruler, starting in Luke 18, 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So we've all read that parable, pretty famous parable. And I think it's easy for us today to sort of sneer at the rich ruler and say, wow, he had such a bad heart, you know. But I actually believe the rich ruler is to be commended in some ways. Because what I, com what I think is good about him is that he didn't take his salvation for granted, right? He came to Jesus and he was concerned about eternal life. He just didn't assume it was a done deal like so many people can today. He came and asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, he was following all the rules, and he thought he had it all together, just like many of us are today. But, but following the rules wasn't enough for Jesus. Jesus saw that in this man's heart, there was idolatry. He loved riches more than he loved God. And you see, Jesus doesn't want followers who are distracted with money or with relationships or with anything else. He wants you to have faith that God will provide for you when you get your priorities right and when you seek the kingdom first. And he told this rich man the good news. He told him good news. He said, look, you can exchange all this earthly wealth you have for treasures in heaven, and then you can follow me. But the man's reaction wasn't joy like Zacchaeus. He went away sad. 
And we don't know if he ultimately obeyed Jesus and sold all of his stuff, but he clearly had an unhealthy emotional attachment to his wealth, didn't he? You know, Jesus didn't condemn people for being wealthy, but he did condemn people for being con- uh, consumed with their wealth and, and for not being generous with it. And in fact, Jesus gave many warnings to his followers about what would happen if they weren't generous with what he had given them. And, you know, some of Jesus' parables are downright scary. I mean, one of them that, that is always a little frightening to me is in uh, Luke chapter 16, where we read about the rich man and Lazarus, right? And you have this rich man who had a beggar at his gate that walked by him every day and didn't give him anything, just left him there for the dogs to, to, to kind of lick his sores, it says in the Bible. And then what happens is the man dies, the rich man dies, he goes to hell. Lazarus, the poor man, dies and he goes to heaven. And from hell, the rich man calls out to Abraham, who he sees in heaven, for help. And we pick it up in verse 25. Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Pretty direct teaching about how we should treat those in need around us, right? We have the sheep and the goats. Robert Carrillo so eloquently spoke about this passage last week in Matthew 25. But Jesus tells us what will happen to those who ignore the needy people around them. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. So again, pretty direct. The last one we'll look at is in in Luke 12, where Jesus talks about the rich fool who has a good crop. And what does the man say in verse 18? He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for itself but is not rich towards God. So very, very direct teachings about how we should handle our possessions and how we should treat those around us that are in need. Jesus was very clear that that salvation for eternity and generosity on earth are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. We can't expect to go to heaven if we ignore those in need around us. And it's important to note that that the first followers of Jesus took this teaching very seriously. They did not see generosity as something optional. They were willing to sacrifice to help others in need. And we just see examples of that with the people that followed Jesus, the first people. If you look at the first church, I love this this portrait in Acts chapter 4 of what the first church was like. And when you pick it up in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Did you hear that? They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Pretty, pretty interesting you know, approach. These people took Jesus' teaching very seriously, right? and they were living. They were taking care of each other. There were no needy people in the first church. Paul, as well, had very direct teaching 
And it's just amazing when you read this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17, just think about how much this echoes what Jesus taught about serving the poor. It says, in starting in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Remember what Jesus said? If you are generous on earth, you'll have treasure in heaven. And Paul taught the same thing. And then finally, in Galatians chapter 2, you have Paul, who's meeting, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles who had walked with Jesus, who had lived and walked with Jesus. So if you look in Galatians 2 and pick it up in verse 9, you know, James, Cephas, and who's, who's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So I think it's so cool that you, hear you, hear, you have the very men, Peter, James, and John, who had walked with Jesus and they had heard Jesus and all that he taught about taking care of people in need and being generous. And years later, Jesus was gone in the body, right? But they were still concerned about obeying Jesus' teaching. Because what was their number one request of Paul? Remember the poor, right? So they took Jesus' teachings to heart, and they were still living them out years later. So these earliest followers of Jesus had several things in common. Number one, they took Jesus at his word. They believed that generosity on earth would mean generosity in, or being treasures in heaven for them. Number two, they were willing to sacrifice to make sure that everyone had what they needed. And number three, they limited their own personal consumption. When they had a lot, they used their excess to help those in need. And they were thinking about others. So what are the takeaways for us? You know, if we look at how we're living here in Los Angeles in 2015, you know, maybe you feel like you're just at the exhaustion point. Because I know I've been there. I mean, I just, I've been there to the point where I've literally said, I remember Dave and Mary, they were on my couch one time and they were, they were counseling me and I said, I just feel like I have nothing left. I have nothing left to give. I have, I'm out of energy. I'm out of, I don't need more money. I need more time. I'm just exhausted. And I'm done. You ever felt that way? We can feel that way from time to time, right? You just get exhausted and you feel like you have nothing left to give. But a few years ago, um, I read this quote from a a theologian, G.K. Chesterton, who was actually an English uh, theologian around 1920s, 1930s. And this quote really stuck with me because he said that there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Really stuck with me. And I think a lot of you know our story, you know me and me. I mean, we come from fairly humble beginnings. I mean, we were working class families growing up. We were not wealthy by any standard. When we got married, we had $50,000 in debt. We had practically no assets. And we lived like Spartans for the first few years we were married to try to get out of debt. And, you know, then from 2003 to 2011 uh, or so, my, I, I had what I thought was the sales job of my dreams. I mean, I was working for the top company in my industry um, I was the top salesperson in the country for several years in a row. But my job required me to travel around six states in the Pacific Northwest. So I was Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Alaska. A lot of territory, a lot of ground. And so I was traveling all the time. And, and what I found over the years is I, I was beginning to weaken in my faith because 
I was not investing in relationships with other men in the church because I was traveling all the time. And it was very hard on my wife as she had to raise our children basically by herself because I wasn't there most of the time. And I eventually realized that, that my pace was unsustainable if I wanted to be a committed Christian, if I wanted to be an engaged husband and an engaged father. So I read this quote from G.K. Chesterton about that time, and I thought, you know, it's time to desire less. So in 2011, we decided to downsize. I downsized my job. I took a, a management job. I came out of sales, and I went to work in management in my company's headquarters so I wouldn't have to travel so much. So we moved to L.A., and for the first couple of years in California, I was making less money, but that was okay because I had decided to, to desire less. And once I got into management, though, I, I, I was still working long hours. I still found myself working 60 hours a week. I had to travel less so I was home, but, but I was still trying to be a leader in my home, and I was still trying to be a leader in the church, and I was working a lot of hours. And I was on a rapid path to burnout. I don't know if any of you feel that way, but my pace, again, was unsustainable. It's just what I was trying to keep all the balls in the air. So about 18 months or so ago, um, me and I decided, hey, you know, it's time to, to downsize again. So, so we were thinking about, wow, maybe we need to move back to my homeland in Iowa, where the cost of living is about half of what it is here, uh, and we could afford to retire there and be in the full-time ministry self-supporting. But then Steve and Jackie intervened and asked us to come on staff in South Bay Church, which we were so grateful for and delighted to do. But, but 2015 has been another process of downsizing again. You know, we've been downsizing our life, and that's okay because we've decided to desire less. And, and you know, yeah, my income is 10% of what it used to be, but we have enough. We have enough because we've de decided to desire less. So, you know, as we move into 2016, it's a good time just to reevaluate your generosity. You know, where are you spending your time and your treasure and your talents? And I would suggest that you use the Bible as your standard, <laughs> because in this area, it's so easy to look at our people around us and say, I'm much more generous than that heathen over there, right? <laughs> look at the Bible and look at your time. Let's start with the time. I mean, is there anything distracting you from committing to God's church? And I got to tell you, I mean, midweek attendance for the men has been abysmal. <laughs> and it's not encouraging. You know, we've had a lot of men that haven't been there. Uh, are you doing well in your discipleship times? Those are times when we get together with other people that encourage us, right? And your family groups, are you committed to those? Are you regularly participating in projects to serve the poor? Uh, you know, if you're new to our church, are you willing to make time to go through a series of personal Bible studies? Well, we'll, we'll explain from the scriptures what God wants for you. You know, that's about making time and, and opening up your schedule and being generous with your time. What about your treasure? You know, treasure, are you giving to God first with the faith that he will have, you, you get treasure in heaven like he promised, but also God will meet your essential needs here on earth when you're generous to him. Or do you need to work long hours to support your lifestyle? <laughs> and maybe time to desire less. Ask yourself if it's time to do that. Your talents, okay? Where do you apply the first fruits of your talents and your energy? You know, God gave each and every one of you here unique gifts, and he wants you to use those gifts to build up the most important organization on the face of the planet, which is what? It's his church. So you may be a leader. You may have gifts of serving, of encouragement, of teaching, whatever it is. If you're not using it for God's church, ask yourself why. You could be pouring yourself into a career because that's where you get your identity. That's where you get your fulfillment. And maybe you need to get your fulfillment from being a disciple of Jesus, not from a job. 
And if you feel too exhausted to be generous towards God with your talents, then it's time to reevaluate where you're spending your, your, your talents and why. And I think we just have so many inspiring examples. Just thinking about, we have so many people that are generous right here in our church. I mean, just, I won't get all, everybody, but just, I think of the Toomeys. They've been really by my heart lately. Uh, Pat and Holly Toomey are so generous with their time. I mean, they, they serve our teens. They organize youth ministry nights. They open up their house all the time for hospitality. And they're just such serving people and generous people. I think of Clay and Lynn Jackson. Okay? Clay and Lynn Jackson are awesome. I mean, they're always seeking people out to have them into their home. If people don't have places to go on the holidays, they invite them over. Uh, is Clay here? Clay's up there. I'm going to embarrass you, Clay. A hundred people signed up to give blood. He did that on his own accord. And I know it was discouraging. The outcome wasn't what we wanted because our partner did, fell through. But we have to lift up Clay for getting 100 people signed up. And Clay, we still have a lot of blood to give. And we're still on board, bro. So don't get discouraged. Thank you for what you do. You know, I think of the Civitanages and they're stepping up to lead Kingdom Kids. I think of the Atkins and what they do with the Champions of the Par. I, I was at the Rally Community Group Thanksgiving get-together on Tuesday. It was the anti-Thanksgiving. We didn't have Thanksgiving food. But, but it was just so inspiring to hear the stories of how the churches rallied around people in need in that group. You know, so evaluate your generosity. You know, have, maybe you're maxed out in the generous department, which is great <laughs> to be commended. I personally feel like I have a lot more room to grow in the area of generosity. I can give more of my time, more of my treasure, more of my talents to help those around me. It's important for your own salvation to do that evaluation because we saw it's a salvation issue. Your generosity is a salvation issue. But it's also important for the church. And I'll just close out here today with a vision of what I think South Bay Church will become if we really take our generosity seriously. I really believe that it's our generosity that's going to make our church a light to the city around us. And I know this is true because the generosity of the early Christians, the first century church, made them stand out in the dark Roman world that they lived in. It's recorded in the history books. You know, historians from the first, second, and third centuries wrote about the generosity of the Christians. And the early Christians were known for spending more money in the streets to help the poor than the Romans spent in their lavish pagan temples. For example, the first century church in Rome, the city of Rome, is recorded as feeding over 1,500 hungry people each day, per day. And most of those people were pagans. They weren't even Christians. In fact, the pagan world came to rely on the charity of the Christians. And that became a, a threat to the Roman power structure. You know, a Roman en uh, emperor in the fourth century named Julian, uh, Julian the apostate, was so envious of the Christians that he actually tried to duplicate the Christian charity through the Roman pagan temple system. He tried to duplicate it and he failed miserably. But he's quoted as saying this. He called the Christians the impious Galileans. That's what he, that's what he called Christians. It says these impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape, which are their feasts. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes, okay, I can understand, cakes are attractive, but a little bit of envy in his voice, right, and he's reading that, of what the Christians were doing to help the poor. My friend, South Bay Church should have the same reputation as the early Christians. 
If we're generous with our wealth and our time, and if we take care of the people around us, in our own midst and in the world around us, we will shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. We will be the city on the hill that Jesus talked about that cannot be hidden. People can argue about doctrine. You know, they can look down on us because we meet at a high school on Sundays. But people cannot argue with the pure religion that James talks about, which is to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. If we're generously spending our time and our treasure on talents, on helping those around us, we will be irresistible to the world around us because we're going to be showing the real Jesus to people in our world today. But it's going to take facing the facts about our position in the world. It's going to take rejecting the culture of consumerism that bombards us today. It's going to take a willingness to reevaluate our generosity and to reassess what we really need. And most importantly, it's going to take faith that Jesus will keep his promise to give you eternal treasures in heaven when you're generous here on earth. So as we move into 2016, let's be generous, let's store up treasures in heaven, and let's be the church that really radiates Jesus into the world around us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.